Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about Aventure, a new platform that's making venture capital available to the masses. It doesn't matter if you are an accredited or non-accredited investor. Aventure provides an opportunity to diversify your investment portfolio by providing access to investing in venture capital funds. The Aventure app provides everything you need to make startup investments, including extensive research material, seamless transaction processes, and allocation measures. For fund managers, Aventure seeks to help you streamline your operations and launch your fund. Now, typically, venture capital and startup investments are liquid, which is a major pain point in our industry. Aventure is fixing this by offering periodic withdrawals for its investors. I and many others in the industry are so excited about this launch. Their first fund launch is coming early next year. So if you want to be the first in the know, join their waitlist at aventure.vc. That's A-V-E-N-T-U-R-E dot V-C. Also check the link in the show notes. Aventure is a California-based fintech company and operates independently from investment advisors on its platform who may be registered as investment advisors in the U.S. or qualify for exempt reporting status. Hey, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying the show, also subscribe to my newsletter at theconsumervc.com, where you will receive new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. All content episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about Aventure, a new platform that's about to launch that's making venture capital available to the masses. It doesn't matter if you're accredited or non-accredited, Aventure provides an opportunity to diversify your investment portfolio and invest in private funds. If you're a fund manager, the Aventure app also provides everything you need in order to make startup investments, including extensive research materials, seamless transaction processes, and allocation measures so you can properly diversify your portfolio. Now, typically, venture capital and startup investments are liquid, which is a major pain point for industry. Aventure is fixing this by offering periodic withdrawals for its investors. I and many others in this industry are so excited about this launch, they are preparing to list their first fund in the beginning of next year. So if you want to be the first to know, join their waitlist at aventure.vc. Our guest today is Steve Burke, one of the founders and partners at Stride Consumer Partners. Stride Consumer Partners is a private equity firm that specializes in partnering with talented and dynamic founders, entrepreneurs, and business leaders to build the next generation of great consumer brands. Some of their investments include Chomps, Jenny's Ice Cream, Dry Bar, and TRX. We discuss how Stride Consumer Partners came together, his investment philosophy with CPG Brands, signs a retail outlet is working, and his 2023 outlook. Without further ado, here's Steve. Steve, thanks so much for your time. How are you doing today? I'm great, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me. How are you? Doing great. Doing great, thanks. So excited to talk about your career, Strike as your partner. This is going to be a lot of fun. From my understanding, you worked with consumer-facing businesses really throughout your entire career. Why consumer and resale? What was your initial attraction to those kind of industries? Yeah, I, I, I didn't necessarily seek it out to begin with, but once I got some exposure, um, really loved it. And, and for me, it's very tangible. Um, and it's something, you know, I find that in consumer, especially the way that 
our style of investing and, and partnering with founders and consumer, um, you can really tap into some fantastic uh, energy and incredibly dynamic people on an absolute mission. Um, and it's energizing and it's an opportunity to really, you know, build something special. And so that's what's, what gets us all excited about it is, is finding those, you know, finding those founders who have caught lightning in a bottle, they're on a mission uh, and, and we get to help out and, and be along for the ride. And so that's, that's really what I love about it. That's awesome. No, that's great. I think that's also what attracted me as well to it. Just the tangibility, the fact that you, that it, you can also have an impact to, to a lot wider range of people and, and people serving their everyday lives. Um, rather than no, no disrespect enterprise, but rather than, you know, en enterprise type businesses where you don't really have that um, ability to. So, um, that's great. Um, so how did you end up finding strike consumer partners? What was the initial thesis and why did you end up leaving, uh, Castanilla partners? Sure. So, um, uh, a bunch of us had been at Castanea for a long time. I had been at Castanea since 2002 and had a fantastic experience, great relationships with our now former partners who taught us a ton um, and really had an enjoyable experience, loved what we were doing, felt like we had really staked out a good uh, investment strategy and built a, you know, a great team and capabilities and all that. Um, and when our founding partners, former partners decided to retire from Castanea, um, faced the choice of you know, continue on as Castanea, but, you know, really consistent with that whole desire to build something. And, and maybe after so many years of working alongside entrepreneurs on their journey, uh, maybe a little bit of a, of a FOMO moment for us where we decided, you know what, let, let's do it from scratch. Um, and so our former partners were incredibly gracious and supportive and, a bunch of us, um, really eight of us in total, started out on this entrepreneur journey of our own um, and decided to, you know, we ended up launching Stride in a way that looks a heck of a lot like Castanea, um, but because it was from scratch, blank sheet of paper, all that sort of stuff, um, just feels a little bit more like we're enjoying that entrepreneurial, you know, building experience. What did you learn when you say, you know, entrepreneurial building experience? What did you learn from that experience um, from uh, from Founding Stride? I'd imagine, you know, from the fundraising element um, to, I know you raised 420 million, which is incredible. Congratulations. Was that the ideal um, amount? And, and kind of how did that kind of, how did you also think about the overall strategy when it came to Stride? Yeah. So a lot of what we learned echoed what we hear from a lot of entrepreneurs that, the process of having to explain your strategy and your vision to a bunch of other people who aren't as close to it as you are is actually a real learning experience that it really causes you to reevaluate everything to, you know, in the process of articulating it to realize where, Oh, maybe we haven't really nailed that. Or maybe we have a decision here that we need to make and we need to pick path A or path B because everyone's asking this question. And so the process itself was really helpful in filling in blanks, some of which we didn't even recognize we had. And so I think that was that was really interesting and educational and was beneficial for us. Um, 
And then a lot of the other learnings, I think also uh, founders and entrepreneurs would would recognize um, everyone's nice to you. <laughs> everyone's nice to you in the first pitch. Uh, and, you, and it's only until you get to conversation two or three where you where you really understand, you know, who who's really engaged, who's asking those questions that shows that, you know, they've thought about it um, since the last meeting. And so that was you know, you, you think coming out of every meeting, wow, that went fantastic. And, and it's only later that you figure out which one of those, which of those first meetings actually did go well. Was it difficult since you had, you know, such a great track record at Castanet and this was not maybe on offshoot, right? This is an entire new thing, but you're basing it a bit on your track record, right? At Castanea. Was it, was it hard to, when you were fundraising to actually maybe craft that story or kind of show, was that quite tricky when you didn't, when, when even though you were obviously affiliated and it had been a Castaneda for a long time, it, this was obviously a new brand, a new partnership that you were developing. Yeah, it, it, it was definitely convincing folks that the track record was, was the track record um, was definitely a big part of the challenge. We were hugely aided by our former partners. Um, you know, they, they were fantastic in making it clear that these were the investments that we led. We were the driving forces behind these investments. Um, and that's huge because I think, you know, it's otherwise really challenging for potential investors to look at something and say, was that really you, you know, were you really the one, um, especially when, you know, our former partners are incredibly impressive guys themselves and, um, you know, cast long shadows. Uh, and so we did spend a lot of time on that. The investors dug in. Um, we were fortunate to have great references from those founders and entrepreneurs that we worked with in the past. And actually, one of the big things that got a lot of people comfortable is I think um, more than, I think something like 17 or 18 of them founders, CEOs that we worked with in the past are actually investors in stride. And so, you know, for, for, for other investors, you know, they looked at that as a real endorsement and that was very helpful in getting them comfortable and establishing our credibility for us. Honestly, what we love about that is what it says about the relationships, you know, that we were in the trenches with these folks helping to, you know, drive the business. And at the end of it all, <laughs> they, they still want to hang out with us. Uh, and so, you know, that that's a huge source of pride for us. But it was also, I think, helpful in establishing credibility. Yeah, because I think at to your point, it's not only that they believed in you, your former founders, but also they, you know, they, they wanted to work with you, right? They actually enjoyed working with you. And so there's kind of two parts to that, you know, you have to enjoy we joke that maybe this was, you know, turnabout is fair play. This is their time to ask us all the tough questions. But, um, but no, it, it is, it, you know, we we really really value those relationships, and so it's been a lot of fun to have good reason to stay in touch uh, and talk about what we're doing now at Stride. Cool, that's awesome. So, what is I would say the overall thesis at Stride because we're partners? When do you typically? Um, are interested in partnering with a company on you know, on a revenue timeframe that, that they kind of need to be? And and also, what what types of businesses are you most interested in? Yeah, so I'll start with the second part first because um, the revenue is far less important than, than some other things that we look at. Um, for us, it is about passion brands. 
it is about you know those companies that are in the early stages of their growth, but despite the youth of the business, have already established something really special in terms of the relationship with their customer. You know, it's not oh, I like this food brand. I like this, you know, beauty brand. It's, I love that company. I can't wait to tell you about it. Um, I love the product. I love the founder's story. I love the authenticity. And where that love affair with the consumer is mutual, you know, where that founder is absolutely on a mission and they're on a mission to make something better in someone else's life. Um, and so for us, it really starts with passion because that translates into exceptional customer loyalty. And we think that more than anything else is the key to success in what we're doing is finding those, those founders that have you know, captured lightning in a bottle and, and really help them expand their reach of their business, expand the audience, but not lose that magic that they started with. Um, and so we do a lot of work to focus on how true that differentiation is, how strong that loyalty is. Um, and that, that for us is really the beginning. And as a part of that is also that founder story and the, and the why they're on this mission. Um, you know, we're not particularly interested in folks who have gotten into a business because, oh, I saw this category and I noticed in the beauty industry, gross margins are really good. So I decided to launch a beauty brand. You know, that's, that for us is not the source of passion. You know, that's not someone on a mission. Um, and so that's where it starts. And then the other things all come after that. You know, typically for us to see demonstrated consumer loyalty, there's a certain amount of revenue, you know, that's hard to see at a million dollars of revenue. Um, but at the same time, we've seen businesses at $50 million of revenue that have very little customer loyalty. They're just really good at customer acquisition because they're really good at, you know, at algorithmic marketing, you know, performance marketing, digital marketing. Um, but if you looked at where we've invested historically, it tends to start around that $20 million revenue mark. Um, but we've certainly invested earlier. Dry Bar was only about $10 million in revenue when we invested. Um, we certainly invested uh, later as well. So there has to be, when I, when I hear you say these passionate brands and that there is, um, that there is uh, you know, loyalty, people are keep coming back to these brands, there is some then product market fit there that you've, that you've kind of have been able to see or some, or some sense of it. Yeah, if if you look at where we spend our time within consumer, you know we don't invest in the entirety of the consumer landscape. Um, we're focused on those areas where consumer passion is strong. And so, where do folks get really excited about brands? They tend to get excited about their food and beverage brands. They tend to get excited about their active lifestyle and enthusiast brands. They get excited about beauty and personal care, um, and then also kind of the intersection of that in services. So what we call multi-unit services, which is a, uh, a nerdy way to say something, you know, a place you go, but you're not going to buy a thing. You're going to enjoy a service like a beauty service, like dry bar, or you're going to get ice cream at, at Jenny's ice cream. What do you think about these passion brands? Do you think about it? And when you're kind of researching or meeting with founders, do you think about it more from like a top down perspective as, Hey, you know, 
plant-based is really interesting. Let's go and find passionate brands in, you know, plant-based, for example. Or do you think of it more so as you're talking with founders and you're actually learning from the founders of maybe more a bit more bottoms up where the founders are kind of coming up to you and being like, actually like this area, this like kind of what seems, you know, kind of a bit niche or um or, you know, we're actually there there's a really we've actually been able to create quite a big following and people are quite passionate about it. And you might be blown away because you would, you, you had no idea. It's, it's definitely the latter. I mean, we're, we're certainly looking at those trends, you know, meat alternatives, dairy alternatives, um, clean beauty. We're absolutely aware of them. We're absolutely looking at them, but we're not the type of investors that say, Hey, clean beauty is the next big thing. Let's go invest in any clean beauty brand. Um, and in fact, I'll give you a great example. We're investors in a, uh, a snack business called Chomps. And Chomps is in a, the meat snacks category, which is a portion of snacking that we've looked at for a long, long time and had convinced ourselves was not going to be an area that we were going to really spend any time in. There were a lot of things that we didn't love about the category. But what Pete and Rashid have built at Chomps is so different than everything we've seen before, so much more compelling that that's a great investment opportunity for us. So it really is what you said, more the latter, where it's a bottoms up. The founder has you know, created something that is distinctive. We're not just betting on an overall trend. First of all, so glad you brought up Chomps. Big fan of the company. Oh, it's fantastic. It's absolutely delicious. What do you think? I know that you've, you you described a couple of points in terms of what differentiated them, Chomps, um, from other category. But can you, if you're able to go a little bit deeper into why when you saw Chomps and it wasn't in maybe an area that you particularly thought was interesting to you, didn't think it, it could have quite the appeal that you thought, what were they doing so differently from other brands that you thought really resonated with consumers? So a lot of stuff, but I'll, I'll simplify it down to two things. One is the product was had a much broader appeal than just the traditional beef jerky product. Um, and part of it is because they were they are producing something that tastes great and also has what the customer is looking for, for a healthy snack. And so it's, you know, we don't think of it as a jerky business. It's a healthy snack business and it's a healthy snack because it's high in protein, because there's no sugar, because it's grass fed, you know, beef, all of those great things that consumers are looking for. And then the other aspect of it is those guys are maniacal about product quality. And so the consistency of that product is so much better than anything we'd seen in that category. And those two things are what the customer cares about. And so it really is important that not only is there loyalty and passion, but that when you dig in and understand why, that it all hangs together, that there's a darn good reason why the customer is so uh, emphatic about this about that product. How, how also, just thinking about food and beverage here for a moment, how do you think about when you have companies that are premium products, better for you products, um, um, uh, which better describes it, but um, that have had some success in Whole Foods or or some of the natural channels, when you're analyzing these brands to you, because I'd imagine that part of the, the, the kind of sweet spot or like the magic sauce is is them actually working for con- uh, conventional and being able to really blow to actually blow, blow out of the park in there. And not all brands are able to actually cross that chasm, right? And so 
when you're as an investor and you're analyzing some of these brands are actually performing really well, have, you know, really high velocities in these natural channels. What are you looking for that actually could make them work for conventional? So I'll talk about it. My partner, Juan Marcos, is the expert on this um, and has you know taught the rest of us. You're right. Y- you want to make sure that the brand can make the leap into a broader audience. Um, and so you can do well in Whole Foods. It's not a guarantee that you're going to do well in more conventional grocery. What we're actually looking for is proof. And so you know we would actually want to see a brand who has entered a conventional grocer and has done really well. Um, but the other thing we're doing is, you know, we, we do a lot of, with data analytics and we're looking actually into panel data where you can see who is the buyer and what else is in their shopping cart. And when we see things that are other products in that shopping cart that are a little more mainstream, you know, if, if everything in that shopping cart is natural and organic, you might ask yourself a question, okay, will this product that we're looking at do well as it, as it goes into conventional? If you see a mix in that basket that looks more typical of some natural, some organic, and some not so natural and organic, it does give you a little more confidence that this has a broader consumer appeal than the traditional better for you early adopters. No, that's really helpful. That's really helpful um, in kind of understanding what actually, and I, I like the fact that you said that you all, you already have to see some some proof points in conventional before. Um, what what are your thoughts as well? Because you know Walmart and Target have become pretty aggressive in terms of getting you know better for your products in um, in earlier, especially ones that are you know D to C products. What are your what are your thoughts on on that part in terms of like because. For entrepreneurs, like it's 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 great it's a great opportunity because they can obviously get into retail. At the same time, it's also a lot of investment, and it might not it might not work all the time. What are your thoughts about going into I guess conventional? When is the right time to go into like a wall? Yeah, hard to so I'll make some generalizations, but it's really a case by case. You know, I think you want to be at a place where you've refined your offering enough. You know, you've had a couple of seasons where you can really see what works and what doesn't and really fine tune that. In that case, it can be helpful to perhaps have your entry into conventional be a conventional grocer where the consumer is not quite so different as the consumer that's already finding you in Whole Foods. The other thing I would say is doing it in a way where you can really support it where you don't want to either take on a retailer that you can't, where you don't have the resources to support or where you go into too many retail doors and your resources are spread too thin. You know, better to go slower and make sure you have the opportunity to understand what happens when you actually do support the brand and learn from that and refine that. And then the next season go in with a slightly broader offering. You know, we're, we're big believers in, crawl, walk, run. Um, and, you know, gaining distribution can be fantastic, but if you do that before you're ready, you know, that could really, you know, give someone a sense, oh, why did it not go so well at that retailer? You must not work in conventional. Well, no, actually it was because didn't have the resources, didn't have the time and attention to devote because we went a little too broad, a little too early. How are you thinking as well about today's market? Because, um, you know, obviously very different. Now we're in 2023 now, but but 2022, especially the second half was very different from the first half and and also, you know, 2021. How are you thinking um, 
how are you thinking in terms of, are you spending more times with portfolio companies or are you spending more time also making new investments or, or maybe are you holding off on investments? I just overall, how do you think about spending your time? We're not big believers in market timing. Um, we're not believers that if, you know, no matter what you invest in, in 2022 is a bad idea. And no matter what you invest in, in 2017 is a good idea. Um, and we're being so selective in finding those brands that have that consumer passion that for us, those are great companies and teams to partner with at all times. Because if you really are finding a passion brand, you know, one of the things we like to say is a passion brand is, is that brand or product that you give up last. You know, there's a great anecdote about Jenny's ice cream in April, May, and June of 2020 in the, like the throes of the pandemic, when all of our shops were closed, which was historically two thirds of the company's revenue, all of them closed. Revenue went up 20% year on year for that three month period because they have such a fanatical following because the ice cream is really that good that the consumer who couldn't go to the shops was going to the grocery store, was ordering online. It, you know, these passion brands are those brands that if I can't find it here, I'm going to look there and I'm not going to give up until I get my hands on my chumps or my Jenny's or my, you know, Patrick Todd makeup. Um, and so that passion is not cyclical depending upon what's going on in the macro macro economy. Um, and so we look at it and say, we want to be a part of those brands at all times. So you never, you don't get nervous or I guess what keeps you up at night is not like when we go through maybe consumer spend, maybe might, you know, decrease and there might be pullback. Then you want to invest in brands, even if, even though they're, you know, premium brands are, they're, they're more expensive than other brands, but you need to find brands that the the consumer that that still is actually going um, are, are still spending money on those brands. We're actually pulling out for, for Uber brands. Absolutely. If, if, if the economy is a little shaky and I'm tightening my belt, I've switched to a generic version of something else. I'm, you know, making my lunch at home, but I'm going to have my Jenny's ice cream because that is my treat to myself. You know, I'm not, you can take away this, you can take away this, you can take away that, but I'm going to have my Jenny's ice cream. And so, and that's, those are the brands we're looking for. And then they tend, they're, they're so special where their growth is not dependent on where the economy is growing at 3% or 2% or down 1%. They're growing because a bunch of other people who used to buy the other brand have learned about it and have switched and have become loyalists. How do you approach just in this economic time? How do you approach? And I don't know if you have approached this before, but a down round or a bridge round and, and um, into one of your companies, when does it make sense to actually um, like execute that capital and help that company rather than, you know, pull back? Cause I've heard from um, I've, I've talked to a few like consumer bankers and they tell me that this is like one of the big kind of decisions for that, that, um, that, uh, board members, investors are really going through in terms of, um, in terms of the actual, uh, if, 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 um, uh, accepting or, 
or denying or uh, or passing on on down rounds and, and, and bridge rounds? So uh, <laughs> I have the good fortune of not knowing how to answer that question. <laughs> okay, um, that's great. <laughs> at the moment, I mean, look, we, we've certainly had our challenges in the past. Um, it, it, it tends not to be macroeconomic. It tends to be more company specific. The, the companies that we're working with right now are all doing quite well, thank goodness, and we'll knock on wood. That's great. That's great to hear. Great to hear. Understand in terms of you have to when you're looking at brands, you have to understand you have to see that passionate from that passion from the from the customer perspective. You have to see some um, some data traction there. Uh, you said roughly, you know, maybe ten million might be like your your minimum in terms of revenue, but really understand that that it's um, really understand that there's you know a lot of repeat purchasing, um, you know, maybe maybe high velocities. Um, how do you also analyze founders? How do you, um, and what kind of makes um, a great founder in your mind? You know, I think the first thing is, is the why, you know, I mentioned, you know, the mission, you know, what, why are they doing this? Why did they take that leap that they did, you know, against all odds to, to launch the business? Um, is this a passion project? Are they all in? I think the other thing is, is understanding the authenticity and the authority, you know, what, where, because that authenticity and the authority for the brand typically comes from that founder. And so, you know, when you're talking about, I'll, I'll say Patrick Ta, we, our most recent investment is in a color cosmetics brand called Patrick Ta. And, and Patrick himself is um, incredibly authentic and has a cre- uh, incredible authority as well, because he is an amazingly talented makeup artist. And so we would differentiate that because he is someone who's creating a brand because he's not finding the product that he wants to use on clients in his makeup artistry. He's not finding that in the market today. So that's his reason for being. And he knows what it takes to make the best product. So there's his authority. And you contrast that with, say, a cosmetics brand that is launched by a celebrity who really doesn't understand the chemistry of the product, doesn't understand the application. They're a user of the product, but his level of authority and authenticity is just so much different because he's an actual makeup artist. And so that for us is helpful because he's going to be so much more successful in the long term in developing new products and launching new products because he has that expertise. But it's also really important because the consumer knows the difference. You know, one of the things that has happened over the last many years um, is consumers are so much more well-educated on the whole 360 degrees of a brand and the story and the why and the, you know, how do you decide new products and and why should I believe that your products are going to be better than someone else's? And so the founder having that 360 degree story that's real and that is credible is also really important to the brand. And then the other thing we spent a tremendous amount of time on is making sure we have real alignment in terms of the vision and the strategy because we're getting married. You know, when, when we're making an investment, you know, we're, we're locking arms and we're going to go down this path together as partners. Um, and it's really important to us that, you know, our vision and their vision is, is fully aligned. No, that's a great, it's a great, um, I'm really glad you brought Patrick's story up and as well as, you know, wrangling in as well, like celebrity brands. I mean, we've had on, um, 
uh, CEOs of celebrity-led um, companies as well, and that are doing that are doing very, very well in their own regard. Um, I agree that having um, that. What's really interesting about Patrick's story is that, of course, he 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 is a world-renowned makeup artist, and so he actually he also he has that celebrity appeal because he already is um, he already is world-renowned. As well, this is what he does. I mean, this is what he knows as well. This is this is who he is. Right. This isn't a side hustle. This isn't a side hustle for him. You know, this isn't about the royalties. You know, uh, he's he's in it um, every day. Exactly. Exactly. And and when he says that, you know, this is not something that I see on the shelves that I want to see. Like, you know, you're going to believe Patrick. So um, that that makes a ton of sense. I know that you. I know that you've invested um, in brands that have done quite well with the direct to consumer channel. And there's a lot of kind of criticism um, that have been crept up within the direct to consumer channel when it comes to, oh, can you actually make it profitable? Oh, you know, Facebook ads are so expensive. There's no more arbitrage opportunities. Oh, Google, this is so. You know, how are you thinking about when you were to analyze a brand that is maybe only um, only direct to consumer, for example? Um, they haven't gotten into um, retail. Maybe they don't make sense for retail. I'm not sure, but they. But you're analyzing their brand that's only direct to consumer channel currently. How how do you think about direct to consumer channel in the future going forward? Um, and how would you how would you think about that brand too in terms of their their prospects? Yeah, it's it's a very timely question. Um, and we we've been doing direct to consumer long enough where we we were doing it when they used to call it catalog. Um, you know, and there was, and it was about, it was about mailing pieces of paper. Um, and ironically, we've come full circle to a lot of, you know, digitally native brands now dropping catalogs. Um, but you know, it goes back to the loyalty. You know, those, we think a big differentiator of those D2C businesses that are profitable versus those that have, are challenged um, is, is do the customers stick around? Um, and, and, and this is a whole topic that another one of my partners, Sharon Fox, who's just brilliant at all of this has, has educated us on the disruption that has recently happened to in digital marketing and customer acquisition costs going up has really revealed who has a loyalty problem and who doesn't. Because when you're in a period where customer acquisition costs are quite low, because you can micro segment, because you can see people's behavior across all these digital platforms, because you can, you know, we talk about the rise and fall of the algorithmic marketer, you can dial that customer acquisition cost in so precisely that you can show revenue growth without customer loyalty because your CAC is low enough. And then once the tide goes out, because customer acquisition costs go up because of privacy rules and, and walled gardens and the rest, you realize, oh, shoot, I have a real loyalty problem. You know, my, my, now my CAC to LTV ratio, which I was you know, bragging about, doesn't work. And so for us, it goes right back to where we started, which is loyalty. If the loyalty is high enough, if the repeat purchase rate is sufficient, then you're insulated from those ebbs and flows of the customer acquisition costs. Um, and you've got a more sustainable business that can you know, do well, either purely direct to consumer or where direct to consumer is part of an omni-channel strategy. No, it's a great point. And I think that because when I hear loyalty, I feel like what a lot 
how that has translated towards direct to consumer companies. Oh, maybe we need a subscription uh, service. Maybe we actually need to do subscription. And subscription's really tricky, I think, when it when it comes to physical product. It's not like a SaaS company. Um, it's 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 becoming, and so you, you really have to kind of see does your product actually make sense to actually be a subscription or not? You know. Yeah, you can't force loyalty via a subscription. You know, I think a subscription is one way to have the economic arrangement, but what you really want is the customer who wants to be loyal, who wants to repeat purchase. And whether they do it because they've subscribed or they do it because they just, you know, rebuy, it's the inherent or the underlying loyalty that's the important part. How, when you do invest in a brand, how do you also, we've seen some brands that a, a few of them have done. Uh, well, and then um, a few of them have, ha- have crashed and burned with the whole growth at all costs playbook. How how do you think about kind of that playbook when it actually works, when it makes sense to kind of grow at all costs um, versus not? And maybe your overall approach uh, approach when it well, after you've actually partnered with a brand in terms of what the growth trajectory should be. Yeah, I, I'm not sure we would ever say growth at, at all costs. And, and I know you don't necessarily mean that extreme, but for us, um, Growth for the sake of growth is not really what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is say, okay, where do we want to be in four or five years? What's what what does great look like four or five years? And inevitably it is about growth, but it's about sustainable growth. But it's also about some other things that maybe are in conflict with growth. It is about making sure that your gross margins are where they need to be in order to achieve your goals. If you want to eventually sell the business to a strategic acquirer, they have thresholds they're looking for. Um, It may be that you don't actually want to maximize the revenue in this particular channel of distribution. What you're really trying to do is just demonstrate proof of concept. So for example, in the beauty industry, international and going to Asia or China or even continental Europe, the, the right thing strategically may not be maximize revenue. It may be go demonstrate that the consumer in that market really has the same passion for your brand as they do in North America, but let Estee Lauder, L'Oreal, any one of a number of groups who have much more of the infrastructure and the capabilities, let them take that proof of concept and extrapolate it out what it means to them. And so for us, Growth is one aspect of what makes sense, always sustainable, but really it's in the context of a broader strategy of what do you want to be able to say about your business four years from now, partially about revenue, but also about a lot of other things, including customer loyalty, including the breadth of your assortment, including, you know, a whole lot of things that are qualitative as much as they are quantitative. Yeah. So it's almost like what are you actually looking to accomplish? Like what's like the one, what's like the one thing you're looking to accomplish when you actually establish a new initiative or maybe expand to a new market? Yeah. And that's, and that's the part when I talked about making sure you're aligned founder management team and investor, we spend a tremendous amount of time on that up front. What, what, what's your vision? We can help you articulate that in more specifics or with certain metrics that are important, whether you're in beauty or active lifestyle or food and beverage, but let's all understand, you know, lay out what it is. What's the blueprint of the house you're trying to build. 
first. Make sure we're aligned. If we're not aligned, let's have that conversation. And then we'll put that into a specific plan that says, okay, if that's where we want to be in four years, what do we need to do next year? What are the resources that we need to do that? And how do we pace that? And what are those trade-offs between, say, growth and profitability, growth and gross margins, et cetera? That's really well said. I know we talked a lot about this conversation about consumer brands and consumer products. I would love to also reserve a little bit to discuss uh, retail stores like you know Drybar and um, and kind of the other side because those are very different businesses to you know consumer product businesses. How for, I'd love to walk us through how you made the investment in Drybar and as well as when you are analyzing a retail store in, to invest in. What are what are some things that you have to see? Um, obviously, the passion, but like, are there other kind of kind of elements to the store that you have to particularly like? Yeah. So, and Drybar had them all, <laughs> and, and had them all. It was so compelling that we felt comfortable investing when they were a little smaller, and there was a little less evidence because the evidence they had was so darn compelling. I mean, it was. It was unbelievable. The customer testimonials, the passion, you know, Allie and Michael and Cam had really created something that was so different and resonated so strongly. Um, And the beauty of that business is there's no one in between you and then customer. So sometimes if you're in a wholesale business, if you're selling, you know, chomps, um, you might not know what the repeat purchase rate is from that individual customer because there's Trader Joe's is in between you and, and them. Drybar, you knew every customer, every visit, every location. And so you could really see that repeat per- purchase and the loyalty was off the charts. And then just like we have certain thresholds that we're looking for, you know, we've been doing this long enough where we know in a food and beverage business for a particular category, you really want to see either this gross margin today or a path to get there. When you're in multi-unit, there are similar metrics. You want to see you know, this amount of revenue per location, this sort of profitability per location. What does that profitability look like relative to the capital it takes to open that door? Um, and so just like we have, you know, 20 years worth of data and, and experience and pattern recognition on what those metrics ought to look like in a consumer packaged goods company, we have similar for what we call multi-unit services, be it Orange Theory Fitness or Jenny's Ice Cream or Dry Bar. No, that's that's really helpful. That's really helpful um, in terms of just how you think about when you're, when you're analyzing new opportunities um, when it comes to stores versus um, uh, products. And there's other similarities we look for. Like one of the reasons we loved Drybar is not only was there the service opportunity, there was the product opportunity. So when we invested in the business, Allie had a vision for a product line. And we helped her turn that into a reality, connected her to the labs and the manufacturers for the um, for the shampoos and the conditioners and and. Uh, for the tools as well, blow dryers and curling irons, introduce them to QVC, introduce them to Sephora. She knocked their socks off. And, you know, 13 months after we invested, we were on QVC and in Sephora. Um, And then with Jenny's, it's a similar thing where you have the shops that are, you know, 
really fantastic economics and incredible consumer loyalty, but you also have a business where we're selling the same ice cream in pints through Whole Foods, conventional grocers, et cetera. And the part that most folks may not know, uh, we have a very vibrant gifting business where you can send via our, our website, you can send gifts of pints of ice cream uh, to either friends or, you know, we do it through work. And the, the response we get relative to sending the bottle of wine, you send a box full of ice cream and, and people go nuts. Um, and so that kind of combination of it's a service business, but with a product aspect to it, it's a little bit of a one plus one equals three uh, when you're talking about Drybar, Jenny's or some other uh, multi-unit businesses that we look at. What's one book do you think that, that has inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? Oh, that's interesting. That's a great question. So I'm, I'm actually not a big reader of the classic business books. Um, I tend to get more inspiration both personally and professionally out of uh, history. Um, um, you know, Shackleton, you know, Endurance, that book, um, Unbroken, um, Boys in the Boat. I mean, all these amazing stories of people who you know, kind of classic and similar to, to what we're talking about here, people on a mission who have overcome all odds and just wouldn't give up um, and have achieved, you know, amazing things. I find that, you know, really inspirational, especially when it's a story that you might not have heard of. Like it's not, it's not what you covered in history class in school. It's, you know, you, you wouldn't necessarily know the story of boys in the boat, but boy, you read it and it's, it's your, it's an amazing story and incredibly inspirational. No, totally. It's funny. Um, Shackleton, um, endurance is, uh, one of the most cited books that actually has, has come up on this show whenever it asks this question. So yeah, you're in, you're in very good company. You're in very good company. That, that, that story, you can't like, you can't possibly believe it's true. Um, and it's one of those things you're like, and that happened? Like, how did this guy keep going? You know, they conquer this and then the next thing. And Unbroken was similar. Um, just amazing. What's one piece of advice, Steve, that you would have for, for entrepreneurs today? I would say, you know, follow your dream, your passion. If I'll, I'll put it in a lens of, you know, the podcast lens of a little bit of as you're building the business and maybe you're thinking about, you know, what comes next, you know, the basics matter and, you know, the basics are, you know, the customer loyalty, the, Hey, take a little longer, but do it right. You know, all that sort of stuff that it, and don't get distracted by today's shiny object, those sorts of things, sustainable growth, good economics, blocking and tackling good team, you know, that stuff never goes out of style. I would say also, if you're taking on a partner in any way, shape or form, um, you know, put as much energy and thought and diligence into that as you would any other part of your business, you know, call every reference, you know, call references they don't get that, you know, they didn't give you track, figure out who else has worked with them that they didn't tell you about you know, really take that seriously because you are getting married and you want to make darn sure that, um, that you know who you're, who you're partnering with. Um, and you know, any of us can find three people to say nice things about us. 
and you know, go find those, go find those things that didn't go quite so well and find out how that partner did, how they acted, were they supportive, you know, during that tough time. I love, I love all those pieces of advice. I, I completely agree the the, the basics matter. Um, also, also, you know, um, partner with the right person. Um, and, uh, this love all that. I mean, especially to like, obviously loyalty and, you know, look at, um, uh, and kind of understand how your customers are, w- w- what they're drawn to your product, but also make sure on the ghost margins that your ghost margins are, are pretty healthy from the get-go. Right. And not, um, and not kind of say, oh, well, if we lower the prices here, then we can sell a lot more. Like just make sure that really, really understand like, like the value they're actually giving to, uh, the customer. Steve, thank you so much for your time. This is a lot of fun. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. This has been, this has been great. Uh, really appreciate your time and uh, great questions. Uh, I got to go find a new, another book to read something, something, something truly inspirational to put on the nightstand. So I, at least I have something to talk about. No, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's, it's, it's a really, really great book. And there you have it. It was so great time with Steve. I hope you all enjoyed listening. And if you are enjoying the show, I highly recommend checking out my newsletter at theconsumervc.com where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox as well as a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. Thanks for listening.